Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and this is my boss, Mark Jennings, and I was giving him a call because I am a responsible professional. Mark, I, I have an idea for a podcast. I just wanted to run it by you. Um, so I was kind of keen to do like a sort of a wrap-up of water fluoridation, the, 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 the broad issue of water fluoridation in New Zealand. What do you reckon? Seriously, there's no way you want to do this. <laughs> this issue is worse than 1080. <laughs> you might as well go and jump into a wasp nest because I'll guarantee you, you're going to get stung. You're on your own. I'm not having anything to do with this. And when the complaints come flying in, you can deal with them. It sounds like it's right up Newsroom's alley then. Fluoridation's been in the news because the decision on whether water supplies are fluoridated or not has been taken away from individual councils and put in the hands of the Director-General of Health. And I've got to be honest here, I didn't really realise when I pitched the story just how polarising this issue was. Like, I knew it was a thing, don't get me wrong. But after chatting to Mark, I went around some other senior editorial staff to get their thoughts. Um... Well, have fun with that. Don't do it. Big mistake. No. Bad idea. No. No. Why? Thinking about doing a podcast about water fluoridation, what do you think? <laughs> the controversy around water fluoridation has been knocking around for years. It's been debated on TV. The Advertising Standards Authority has not upheld complaints about two recent anti-fluoride ads that aired on TV. At universities. An event coming up on university premises hosted by Fluoride Free New Zealand and entitled Fluoride is a neurotoxin that reduces children's IQs. In local politics. Deciding whether to put fluoride in drinking water is shaping as a major issue at this year's Canterbury District Health Board elections. Even in the New Zealand Supreme Court. Anti-fluoridation group Health New Zealand took the council all the way to the Supreme Court. Four of the five judges ruled in favour of fluoridation saying the council has a duty under the health act to protect and improve public health in its region but all this debate may finally be coming to an end the government today announced that local councils will no longer be in control of the country's water fluoridation with director general of health dr ashley bloomfield making the decisions from here on in today on the detail the nuts and bolts of adding fluoride to water Dr Rob Beaglehole is the spokesperson for the New Zealand Dental Association, which represents nearly 3,000 dentists around the country. And I began by asking him what fluoride actually is. Well, fluoride is actually a naturally occurring element. Uh, it exists ev- everywhere. You know, we find it in the water, obviously. We find it in, in dirt, soil, plants and rocks, and it's even in a whole lot of foods. Okay. And what does fluoride do to us? Well, basically, fluoride, it makes the teeth um, more resistant to decay by strengthening the surface of the tooth, particularly the enamel. It also interferes with the growth of plaque, which is the cavity-causing bacteria. And it also helps to repair teeth that have already been damaged by tooth decay. Okay. Now, you mentioned that fluoride occurs naturally in water. So if that's the case, if fluoride is in water, why do some places add more of it to water? Well, that's a, good, that's a very good question. So in some parts of the world, say, you know, North India, there's very, very high concentrations of fluoride in the water, 
particularly because the water runs over certain types of rock that have high concentrations of fluoride. In New Zealand, it generally exists at a relatively low level, but there is quite a lot of variation amongst the country. In a lot of places, it's only at about, say, you know, 0.1 part per million. So we're basically drinking water that already has fluoride in it, whether we live in areas that have reticulated water supply where the water is fluoridated or not. So basically, water fluoridation, the process of that, is adjusting this fluoride that already exists to a high enough level to have a positive impact on one's teeth. And that's at about 0.7 parts per million. So it's almost standardising the amount of fluoride in the water supply um, to make sure that it is in sufficient quantities for it to have a, a health benefit on our teeth. Exactly. So that's it. So most of the cases in New Zealand, there's there's not enough fluid in the water, so it's it's basically topped up. Okay. So we want to strike a balance, really, when it comes to the amount of fluoride in our water, and we can do that, so we do. Exactly. And generally, if you're living in a fluoridated area in New Zealand and you're brushing your teeth twice a day with fluoride toothpaste, then you're going to be totally fine. The main problem that we've got here in New Zealand is that only about two and a half million people are drinking water that is fluoridated. So there's another, you know, two and a half million people that are not having the additional benefit of drinking water that has been fluoridated. What happens if you are drinking water that hasn't been fluoridated? Are there generations of New Zealanders or areas of New Zealand that are almost like case studies in what happens when your water supply is not fluoridated? Well, there's classic studies that have been done all over the globe, but also in New Zealand. So what we know from the latest study that was done in 2009, the National Oral Health Study, it clearly highlighted that Um, children and adolescents living in non-fluoridated areas compared to those living in fluoridated areas had 40% more tooth decay than the others. So basically, if you're living in an area that has fluoridated water, you've got a 40% more chance of having um, better teeth. Okay, that's a slightly reductive way of looking at it, though, isn't it? I mean, there are factors that could contribute to that, for example, um, the socioeconomic demographics of, of those areas and so on and so forth? Yes, I should have, I, sorry, I should have um, um, paraphrased that by, by stating that all those confounding factors are, t- are taken out oh. um, when they're looking at it. So obviously it's very difficult to compare cities with cities, with one city, say City A and City B, if those cities have different socioeconomic uh, groups. So, yes, it's the confounding factors are taken into consideration. Classic example, I used to work in Wellington that had, uh, obviously, fluoridated water. I moved to Nelson to practice at the hospital as a hospital dentist. Uh, Nelson doesn't have water fluoridation, um, and I was shocked at the amount of tooth decay I was seeing, particularly in kids at the hospital, due to the fact that Nelsonians are not drinking water. At present, as of today, who decides whether or not a district's water supply will be fluoridated? So currently the decision-making process around where to fluoridate a water supply rests solely with the council. And there's 67 councils all around the country. About a third of them have fluoridated um, water. 
interestingly enough, the new bill that currently is sitting in the Parliament was going to take the decision-making process off the councils and give them to the DHBs, the 20 DHBs around the country. Subsequent to that, last week, Minister Varel, Associate Health Minister, responsible for uh, the water supply of New Zealand, has decided with Cabinet approval and Prime Minister's approval to introduce an amendment to that bill to take the decision off the DHBs and give it to the Director-General of the Ministry of Health. This will shift decision-making on fluoride from local authorities to the country's top health official. Now, I know that you're in favour of fluoridation, but I do want to get into the reasoning behind people who are not. Can you articulate, as objectively as you can, you know, what are the most common arguments against fluoridating water? Arguments against? Well, um, there's the mass medication, there's taking my individual right away from me, um, it gives you hair loss, it lowers IQ, you know, it gives me brain disease, uh, ME, MS, um, headaches, you name it. There's always something out there that someone will attribute fluoride to. You know, I, I respect people's views. We're all, we've all got our own views, we've all got our own beliefs. I guess I am generally guided by science and I'm particularly guided by the totality of evidence. So when I look at papers, I like to look at papers and research that, say, studies you know, 100,000 people over 50 years rather than the paper that studied 10 people over six months. So I guess I'm also guided by the World Health Organization and the American Centre for Disease uh, Protection. The arguments of anti-fluoride activists range fairly wildly. Fluoride-free NZ claims fluoride is toxic, damages infants' brains, that chemicals are scrubbed from the chimneys of the phosphate fertiliser industry and contain traces of lead and aluminium and arsenic and mercury, and that dental school stats show no difference in tooth decay between fluoridated and non-fluoridated areas, among other claims. And look, some of that stuff that's said is theoretically true fluoride is toxic in extremely high doses, but to get close to a lethal dose, an adult would need to drink about 10,000 glasses of fluoridated water all in one go. That's according to the official Ministry of Health website. The thing is, we don't really want to get into that right now. It's a laborious process involving two sides holding up scientific research and shouting at each other. What we can say is well, here's the former Prime Minister's chief science advisor, Sir Peter Gluckman. The discovery that the addition of fluoride to water at low concentrations in regions where natural concentrations of fluoride are low was one of the great public health discoveries of the 20th century. It's still very effective, it's still very important, particularly for vulnerable members of our community. There are no health risks and it's something that really makes a difference to many people's dental health. But let's take a closer look at one of the points these folk make. Consent. Because when push comes to shove, we are putting a medicine into our water supply. And that begs the question, when is that okay? And who makes that call? Tim Deere is a philosophy professor at the University of Auckland who specialises in medical ethics which means he studies... Lots of issues around um, 
questions about who should be treated and distribution of health resources, lots of end-of-life issues, and uh, a lot of issues around consent. So one of the big developments in New Zealand really over the last four decades now, I suppose, has been a shift away from essentially paternalist views where the idea was everyone accepted that doctors knew best and we've shifted wildly in the other other direction, most obviously from the Cartwright Inquiry and, and National Women's, but, but, but just more generally to the idea that... Um, that consent and autonomy, patient autonomy, is a, is a primary value. And so lots of issues around consent. This is sort of an issue yeah. about consent, isn't it? It, it, it is. So, so the, the, these issues around uh, vaccination and um, fluoridation raise lots of those similar consent issues. When you say we've shifted wildly in the other direction, do you think that we've shifted too far? Um, so I do. I, I think occasionally... Um, we're knee-jerk anti-paternalist, and uh, I think even sophisticated patients occasionally need more guidance from doctors than doctors are comfortable giving them. And, and so that, that familiar question, you know, what would you do? So you're in a difficult situation and uh, having to make very difficult decisions, uh, either on your own behalf or for a child, and, and perhaps in very stressful circumstances, and health professionals are saying, well... You know, there are, there are, here are the options, and often they're very complicated and there are nested probabilities. You know, if this happens, then there's an X percent chance that'll happen, but if that happens, then so-and-so. And often I think patients in very stressful circumstances are just sitting there going, you know, oh, no, cancer, mm. you know, or something. They're not in a position, I think, to really do the calculation. Um, and, and so I think patient, uh, doctors, rather, really have to take responsibility to help patients make those decisions. We're talking here about fluoride. Let's get your cards on the table now. Yep. I mean, what are your thoughts about fluoride being added to water? So I'm, I'm pro-fluoride. The, the big issue is the balancing of the very clear, um, or widely accepted, let's suppose, since they're not, not universally accepted, widely accepted benefits of, of fluoride, that these are very significant health benefits, and the widely accepted view that there's relatively small cost um, to people. And then we have to recognise that um, standard ways of delivering fluoride by adding it to drinking supply actually don't provide much opportunity for people to to consent or mm. withdraw. And, and so that comes back to this consent and autonomy issue. So we can provide ways for people to opt out. So Hamilton has a fluoride-free free tap somewhere at Claudeland's showground, I think. But of course, that's quite demanding for people to go and get their, their water. So, so I think we just have to accept that we are making this balance. We're thinking that the cost-benefit analysis of, of fluoride um, is such that there's a good case for putting it in the drinking water, and we accept that that case is good enough to fail to give everyone the opportunities to opt out that we might in, in other circumstances. Anti-fluoride activists are often mocked by people for many reasons, some of them probably quite good reasons, spurious use of mm. science and really, you know, playing silly buggers around the margins. But do you understand the reservations that people have in terms of we're adding something to water and that's kind of freaky? Do you kind of get it a little so bit? So I don't, I don't have that intuition. So, so I, I do understand their reservation because I think um, our community places a great deal of store in autonomy. You know, I should be able to choose, um, provided I'm not harming anyone else, I should be able to basically do what I want. So, so we have basic restrictions around my liberty, but they're all around protecting other people. 
And and these cases are ones in which the community is interfering with the liberty of people in order to bestow benefits mm. on others. But it's, it's not as if the people who are being required, in effect, to drink fluoridated water pose a threat to others. Mm. Um, and so that standard argument for interfering with liberty is absent. So I can understand the reservations from that point of view. I'm not much moved by the idea that it's just freaky, I think was your term, to mm. add something to water. Of course, we clean up. We, we clean up our water um, in all sorts of ways. So th- this is just something that's in water. It's a, it, you know, it is a natural product, but that's a red herring too. You know, cyanide and arsenic are natural. So, so the, the naturalness, I think, is beside the point. Um, but I'm not much moved by the idea that uh, an intervention which is backed by good science is freaky. Um, uh, you know, there is good science. Um, it's widely accepted. It's been looked at carefully. Um, so my sympathy with them is around the, the fact that we just have to say to them, look, we, we respect your view. We think that the, the cost-benefit analysis around fluoride um, is such that we are justified in putting this in the water. So, so there we are. You know, we have to have that discussion. Um, I don't want to write them off as being flakes. Mm. So that's not the issue. I think the issue really is we're a community which takes autonomy seriously we think it's justified in this case overriding or failing to respect autonomy as we normally would because of the very significant benefits. Um, and, of course, there are lots of cases in which we, we do that. What so are some of those? We, we, well, um, uh, all sorts of road safety, seatbelt uh, legislation. Vaccination is not compulsory, but we certainly have a pro-vaccination uh, stance around it. We push it pretty vigorously as a, as a community. Minimum wage legislation, mm-hmm. you know, you can't work for less than the minimum wage, even if you want to. Uh, why do we do that? Well, we think we're protecting people. We've made a decision as a community that this is a, a way to prevent exploitation. So there's lots of uh, autonomy minimising, autonomy restricting practices out there. The question is whether they're justified. Um, so one of the things we have to see is that autonomy matters, but of course it's not the only thing that matters. It's it's a valuable thing, but it's not the only valuable thing. And and you know the welfare of children. Is valuable, and, and of course, in, in many of these cases, in the fluoride cases, one probably a lot of the benefits here are for children, and they, of course, are not in a in a position to make the choice on their own behalf anyway. So, someone has to. But like you know, okay, let's just go hypothetical. Pre- presumably, there are things that we could add um, supplements and uh, vitamins to water and create sort of this water cocktail that wouldn't affect the chemical use of water, but would positively reinforce the body. Maybe it would make yep. it more um, resistant to bacteriums and things like that. We don't do that. But would it be ethically justifiable if we were to sort of make water like super water? You know, right. would that be an ethically justifiable thing to do? Well, it would depend on the detail. Uh. So we have to bear in mind that the intrusion or the the loss of autonomy is a serious matter. You know, it's not something to be to be um, uh, ignored. Um, and so we would have to make the case point by point to say this is a case in which we are prepared to override autonomy and, and we're satisfied with this. So we add um, iodine to salt. But you can um, buy non-iodized salt. Um, well, you, you know, you can buy a non- a bottled water. You, you, yeah, b- bottled water. Though, though, again, you know, I think, I think the water is so pervasive mm. um, and, and such, such a you know, standard part of our everyday diet that, it, that it's trickier. But so I don't think we need to, to accept the slippery slope argument mm. that we say if we do this, well, won't we do it for everything? Um, this is a very particular argument. It's been looked at very carefully, um, um, and, you know, and I appreciate not everyone 
um, is convinced by the by the scientific evidence, but nonetheless, a great deal of effort has been put into assessing the science on both sides, um, and and a decision has been made. Um, you know, a public decision. It's out there. It can be challenged. So, you know, if we we're thinking about other cases, I would like to see the same sort of evidence. But I don't think there's much point in sitting here and sort of you know making the cases up because because what one has to make up is the balance, exactly. and, and and that turns on the facts. One thing, actually, I'd like to say here, I mean, we should always remember that um, one very uh, important and legitimate exercise of autonomy is the surrender autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one one way a, a sensible, autonomous person gets through the world is occasionally to say, you know more about this than I do. And, you know, so, so I, I commute to Wellington once a week. I've got no ambition to fly the plane. <laughs> you know, um, um, it makes sense for me to say, you know what you're doing, you, you can do that. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I have this feeling about doctors too, personally. You know, so, so as I said, I'm not, I'm not medically trained. So when I go and see a doctor, um, of course I'm interested. You know, I, I may listen to the complicated explanation of what's going on. But actually at a certain point, I think someone who's done seven years or ten years or, yeah. and has 20 years medical experience is just bound to know more about this than I'm going to. You know, so I'm just always keen to, to think that one thing a sensible autonomous person does is sometimes say, you know, um, I'm happy to hand over to you in, in this, this zone. Um, is it is it Socrates? Is it? Uh, no, I, I, think, I know that I know nothing. Is it? Uh, is uh, no, I, I, I fear that might just be me. <laughs> um, so so you know, if Socrates said it. Good good on him. You know. You're in, you're in good company. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> The controversial thing about fluoride is that it's actually controversial in the first place, particularly when you think about the totality of evidence. But look, I've got some close friends who are definitely opposed to water fluoridation. And, you know, it's some awkward conversations, but at the end of the day, I'm, I just, you know, I'm evidence and I'm science-based and I'm guided by those big studies. The other thing I've suggested to friends is that you can easily buy a water filter, basic water filter, that will take out fluoride. So that's another measure that individuals can implement if they don't choose to drink fluoridated water. Mm. You'd just probably recommend that they get some health insurance as well, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was produced by Alexia Russell and engineered by Jeremy Ansell. And thanks to Tim Deere and Dr. Rob Beagleholt. Matewa. Matewa.